Thank you for listening to this sermon from Hope Church, Toronto West. It is our prayer that through these audio sermons, you are challenged and transformed by the Word of God, built up in love and faith, and drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you that these online resources are never meant to be a substitute for God's good plan for you to be present, connected, and serving in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you live in the West Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we encourage you to come check out one of our Sunday services. Now, as you prepare your heart to receive God's word, we pray that his spirit would use the sermon powerfully in your life. Well, good morning, church. I, Andrew, I appreciate the warm. And uh, I appreciate the invitation to be here this morning to be able to preach the word to you guys. I met Pastor Jason probably close to 20 years ago when he first joined uh, Hope, formerly Harvest Church, and remember talking to him a lot about his desire to church plant, and eventually, and, and it's real cool to be here, almost 20 years later, being able to preach to you. Um, I'm thankful for Pastor Jason's service to you and his labor in studying the scriptures and praying over the scriptures and being able to deliver the scriptures to you in order to feed you and help guide in the Lord. Um, <clears throat> I love preaching, all right? I, I enjoy preaching very, very much. Um, as Andrew said, I run a construction company, and part of my deal with the construction company is that I have to sell. I, I'm the only salesperson in the construction company. So in order for me to have, for my employees to have income, well, I need to be able to sell work. I need to be able to sell work. Now, one thing that I don't like to do is upselling, right? And we don't like to be subject to upselling. And sometimes I do a little bit of soft persuasion as to why someone should over that. But I don't like to force things. I don't like to force people to believe the things that I believe. And then this morning, it, it's mildly the same thing because I can't force you to believe anything. I, I can't force you believe what will be preached this morning. But I can pray and I can hope that the Lord will work in your heart and that I'm willing to upsell. I'm definitely willing to upsell that. So if you have your Bibles this morning, why don't we open it up together? Hebrews chapter four. Hebrews chapter four. And we are going to be looking at the last three verses of Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16. But before we dive into the text, let me and ask for the Lord's help. Father, we love you. We thank you that you sustain and that you uphold this universe. Lord, you are sovereign over every circumstance in the world. You know hair on our heads turn black or white. No leaf falls from a tree apart from your son's sovereign decree saying, I allow it. And so, Father, this morning, I pray that you, as the one who guides the heart of kings, 
be pleased to guide our hearts, that you would help us to absorb the scriptures, that you would help us and, and cause your promise of Isaiah 55 to, to be very real, that your word comes down from heaven and accomplishes what it has been set out to accomplish. I pray that this morning that would be the case. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. This is what Holy Scripture says. Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, could as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so by way of service to you this morning, divvy up this passage into three points, and each one of these three points corresponds to the three verses that we're going to read. And so these three points are, and we're going to unpack each one of them. The first point is, the, is an exhortation that is given, that we must hold fast to God's promise. The second point that corresponds to 15 is the exhortation that is given is now grounded. In other words, the reason for the exhortation is now provided and then finally, the exhortation, verse 16, is encouraged. The exhortation is encouraged. So let's read this morning, verse 14. The exhortation given, and this is the exhortation, all right? We must hold fast to God's promise. We must hold fast to God's promise since then, or because, verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed. Jesus, the Son of God, here's the exhortation, let us hold fast our confession. Now, what is this confession? That's the first question we got to ask as we approach the text. What is, what is the author of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit seeking us today? What is this confession? And what's more, if you're reading attentively, we want to ask, what is the relationship between the confession and Jesus going through the heavens? Because apparently Jesus in the heavens is what allows us to hold fast our confession. What is confession? Well, in its broad general terms, we can simply say that, that confession is an assent to the truth. We confess, we align what we believe to what is true, and then we somehow express that, whether in writing, in words, verbally, in our actions. So we believe something to be true, and we express that belief. And the basic, we all know very, very well is what? Confession of sin. It's confession of sin. Right? We sin, we acknowledge our wrongdoing, and then we confess, and out of the confession flows forgiveness, 
And out of the forgiveness granted on the basis of the confession, now we have restoration, we have reconciliation. But confession is not, biblically, it's not just about sin. It's not simply just about sin. Romans 10, if we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So even salvation requires confession. And it's not a confession of sin necessarily. It's part that too, but it's a confession of what is true as opposed to what is false. So confession is expressive. We have to express it. And it's also content laden. In other words, it's about something. It's about something. And confession in the book of Hebrews, as we Hebrews, as you, on your own, on your own time, read the book of Hebrews, confession, and in this context, is God's gospel promise of rest in the promised land. It's a confession that we can trust what God has said. And that's why in the preceding verses, that one paragraph that we know all so well about the word of God being what? Living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of, soul and of spirit. And what it does is all these incredible things that we cannot do on our own. Because God is true and God is faith, faithful and we can trust God's faithfulness through his spoken word. Promise, the gospel promise, which is our confession, this gospel promise takes great prominence in the book of Hebrews, but it does it, the author does it in a very interesting way. He contrasts the faithlessness and disobedience of the wilderness generation, which we're going to talk about in a second. He sets that up in contrast to what true faithfulness and true obedience ought to look like. You remember the story of the wilderness, right? So the nation of Israel slavery into Egypt for how long? 400 years, four centuries. It's a very, very long time. And then God raises up a man named Moses through many signs and wonders. Moses delivers the people of God. And you got Pharaoh constantly resisting the word of God, but Moses and delivers the people out of Egypt. And what was the promise? The promise is this, we're going to a promised land. We've been in slavery for 400 years. And we've been waiting for the promise of God. God made a promise to Abraham hundreds of years before about our like the stars of the heavens and the sand of the seashore that you can't even name, but we have been in slavery for 400 years. Finally, God removes them from slavery. And he says, let's go. There is a promised land. We are going to and we are going to the promised land, the land of Canaan. But that took 40 years to get to the land of Canaan. And in those 40 years, the people of God, despite having seen God at work, despite having seen miracle after miracle, they completely 
They disobeyed the Lord. In fact, they even wanted to go back to Egypt because apparently that was better. They were constantly disobedient. And this is what the author of Hebrews in the previous chapter, quoting Psalm 95, says in verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the 40 years of wilderness, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me, God, to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The promised land was supposed to be restful because God was going to be there. And where God is, there. Do you know why there's rest? Because God is there and there's peace. There is peace. Where God is present, there's peace. And these people were longing for that, just like you and I long for that. To be at rest, to be at peace, to be in a place where God's presence is very real and brings incredible joy. But the people of God disobeyed, and the author of Hebrews is constantly telling us over and over again, you see, they were disobedient. They disobeyed. Don't disobey. They constantly disobeyed. And at the very close of chapter 3, this is what he says. And take, note, take, take stock of this. It's really, really important. Chapter 3, verse 19. So we see that they were unable to reach the promised land because of unbelief. The root cause was not disobedience. Disobedience, right? When, when you think about every sin, every relational tension, every broken relationship, every lie, every adultery committed, every murder, every hateful word that comes out of the mouth, all disobediences, all sin boils to unbelief, lack of faith and trust in the Lord. It boils down to that very thing, our hearts having a moment of unbelief and lack of trust in the Lord, such that we need to take matters into our own hands. So what was needed for the people of Israel at that time, as they're wandering in the desert because of their disobedience, was intercession. So the priesthood was set up, the tabernacle was formed, which eventually became the temple. And during that ritualistic, the priests out of the Levite lineage would come into the presence of God and the high priest would go into what's called the Holy of Holies in the temple once a year to offer intercession, to, it, to plead with God to not do what he did to the wilderness generation in the rebellion where he destroyed thousands of them. And so the priest goes into the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, approaches God, offers sacrifices to God, but the catch is this. The priest himself was beset with weakness. So he had to cleanse himself of sins first in order to be in the presence of God because otherwise he'd be struck dead. And so he cleanses himself. He approaches the Holy of Holies, offers sacrifices for sins. And then it happens again and again. 
Oh, and then the priest dies, and then another priest comes in place. And then he does the very same things, offers sacrifices for his own sins, and then he goes into the presence of God to offer sacrifice for the sins of the people, and eventually he dies, and the cycle goes on and on and on and on and on until the priest comes in the scene. And that was the very last high priest that we ever needed, and that is Jesus he breaks the cycle of priests having to go constantly into the presence of God in the temple. Now, the temple was just a replica presence. Jesus went through the heavens, went into the very presence of God to offer intercession for the sins of the people. And he did not have to offer sacrifices for his own sins because well, he was sinless committed any sin. And because, listen carefully, because Jesus was able to accomplish once and for all to give a sacrifice once and for all for sin, he was able to realize the rest which was associated with the promised land. Now we can just go back seven days and we know what's going on in the supposed promised land. There is no rest, even though the people of God reached it. They got there. They got to the promised land flowing with milk and honey. But there was no rest. Because the promised rest was that which Jesus accomplished. Because he is our true rest. He embodies the reality of the promised land that we're looking for. He embodies that. In, and just because there wasn't a physical land that was given to God's people, that does not annul the promise of rest in a land flowing with milk and honey that is yet to come. It just looked a little bit differently than anticipated. This, as we consider the intercessory work of the Lord Jesus Christ, leads us to verse 15, our second point. And that is this, the exhortation grounded, that God's promises accomplished, that God prom God's promises were accomplished by God's son. Remember the confession? confession? Why? Because Jesus went through the heavens. What's the connection? Well, he's our high priest. He intercedes for us. We're sinful. We're disobedient. We're faithless. He's sinless. He's obedient. He's faithful. He goes to heaven, he intercedes on our behalf, and therefore we can lay hold of the gospel promises of God. We can, we can hold fast to our confession, which is there is a heaven that awaits us. We're just pilgrims. We're just sojourners. As Israel sojourned in the wilderness for 40 years, we have been sojourning this earth for 2,000 years as believers as we anticipate what the, Hebrew, what the author of Hebrews said, pity whose foundation and whose designer is God himself, who is the chief architect. There is a day coming that those promises will be fully, fully realized. And we can believe that because Jesus is our high priest. And then for we do not have a high priest unable to sympathize with our weakness. Now, the author could have just left it at that saying, just trust in the Lord. He's done his work. Hold fast to our confession. But no, no, no. He says he went through the heavens. He accomplished the work that he had to accomplish. We can believe in 
because he relates with us, because he can sympathize with our weaknesses, as verse 15 tells us. He, in every respect, has been tempted as we are. So he himself understands temptation. Now, let me, let me just put it this way. If there is truly a promised land that God dwells in, remember garden, the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve dwelt with the Lord, his presence was there, everything was perfect until everything up, and they were booted out of the presence of God. And so the Old Testament anticipates a place where we will be with God again. But, but take stock of this. Before we can dwell in the presence of God, we can dwell in the presence of God, God must dwell in our presence. Before we can dwell in his presence, before we can reach the fullness of the promised land, God must dwell in our presence. And this is what we call the incarnation. So he could never have been a faithful high priest apart from having been exactly like us. Exactly like us. This is, this is what Philippians chapter 2 says about Christ's work. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, so we're looking at God himself, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself, or he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross and Jesus Christ. And what we see in this passage, this very Christological passage, is Christ's humiliation. And for a long time, many theologians thought that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, while between the moment that he was born to the moment that he was exalted, temporarily subtracted from himself divinity. So he became, he chose when he says, when the text says that he emptied himself, some have taken that to mean that he became less God just for a while. You know, because you can't be, you can't, how can you relate with humans if you're God at the same time? And so they say, well, this is a good way for us to explain that text away and say, so this is how our nation is possible. But that's not what the whole of the canon of Scripture teaches us. The canon of Scriptures in the New Testament, we are told that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, is one person, two natures, a human nature and a divine nature, in one person who acts through one nature or the other nature, the divine nature or the human nature. So it's possible then for Jesus to grow in wisdom, yet be all-knowing and all-wise. 
for him to endure fatigue and have to sleep and possibly having a hard time getting up in the morning because he didn't have a lot of sleep. And at the same time, not slumber and not sleep because God doesn't slumber or sleep. He doesn't know the time of his return, yet he knows all things. He's limited to one place during the incarnation, but he is everywhere at the same time. And this is, this is not a contradiction, it's a mystery. And we have just enough biblical to come to this conclusion. Now, before the incarnation, God had perfect knowledge of everything. God knew absolutely everything, but it was not until the incarnation that God experienced the weaknesses of being human beings. We are all beset with tremendous weaknesses and we have a God to whom we can pray and say, he understands it. Because in the days of his flesh, Jesus Christ was subjected to every human emotion. And that's why he can be our true representative. He, he, can, he can sympathize with our weakness. So when you struggle to understand something, you know, a, lot of, a lot of times I see this, especially when having conversations with people about the scriptures. I, mean, I just read this and it's just so hard to understand. True, nobody has perfect understanding and we grow in our understanding. But Jesus can sympathize with that. Growing in knowledge, growing in understanding. Enduring pain and sickness. So, so when you go to the Lord with your pain, brain, Remember that you are praying to a God who knows after the incarnation, now knows what pain is. He knows what suffering is. He knows what limitations are. He knows discouragement is. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends. When you have family tension, he knows that because he's experienced that when you weep and you grieve over, a bro over a broken marriage, over the loss of a child, over the loss of a spouse, over the loss of a job, Christ can sympathize with that because he's experienced all those things. He also experienced not only but he experienced the full, the absolute fullness of divine wrath on the cross. You know, you know that, that wrath that takes an eternity to be poured out on each individual sinner, Christ? Well, in three hours, Christ bore all that for millions and millions of people. He experienced the fullness of the wrath of God so that he can actually come into the presence of God as an intercessor who says, no, they do not need to be punished over this because they have looked to me, they have placed their faith in me, and now all God sees is the righteousness of Christ covering us because of our sinfulness. Because we've truly come to believe in Christ. Now, besides our Weaknesses, besides 
sympathizing with our weaknesses, okay? Here's how broad the humanity of Christ is and the sympathy of Christ towards weak sinners like ourselves. Besides those natural weaknesses that we have as human beings and limitations, he can also sympathize with us because look what the text says. He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's possible to be tempted and not sin, right? Now, James 1 tells us that God does not tempt anybody and God himself is not tempted. So you might be wondering, well, how then was Jesus tempted if he truly is God? Well, again, he's both God and man. He's able to be tempted and resist temptation. He can, temptation. He knows when you and I are being tempted to sin, he knows very well the nature and the weight of temptations that lead us to sin. He knows it because he's experienced it. It's not foreign. This is not the God of never experienced that. Christ has experienced it. He can sympathize with us because he knows what temptation is like, yet he did not sin. And the focus here is not, hey, therefore, you go do likewise, right? When you're tempted, just don't sin. Well, yes, right. But we will still sin. We don't believe in sinless perfection on this side of eternity. The focus here in this text is what Christ has done as high priest, is what the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished in his sinlessness, which is now attributed to us. You know, it's really easy, really easy to feel condemned after sinning, is it not? Like seriously, some of you might be walking in here today and you had a horrible night last night and you profess the name of Christ. Or maybe you don't. The weight of your sin. God bless you that you feel the weight of your sin because it is not a good place to be in where you are not convicted of your sin. And our human tendency, our fallen human tendency is to go and say, how can I fix this now? How can I fix this now? Let me go bless someone. How can I fix this? How can I keep God's wrath from just being poured out on me right now? Right? Well, Paul tells us in Romans 2, well, let me tell you what he doesn't say. He doesn't say it is God's wrath and fear of judgment that leads you to repentance. He doesn't say that, but we tend to think that way. Right? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's his kindness. And how is he so kind? Because he knows the weight of temptation. He knows what it's like to be a human being who's weak and frail. That's not an excuse to sin. It's not an excuse to sin at all. In fact, in Hebrews 12, we're told that God because of our sins. And it's in his kindness that he doesn't because later it yields the fruit of repentance. And that's what we need. Repentance leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness leads to restoration and reconciliation. There's a place for rebuke for sin, of course. 
us to rebuke one another and receive correction because of our sins. And the rebuke is not incompatible with the recognition of God's kindness to us. We don't beat ourselves down because of our sins. We run to him. We run to him because as the one throned in heaven, as our intercessor can bestow grace upon grace to us. And so as we seek to lay hold of God's promises, God's gospel promises, lay hold of this confession, we can do that because our intercessor knows what it's like to be tempted to let go of those promises. When Satan tempts Jesus, he is tempting Jesus to let go of God's promises. Did God really say this? In our sin, tempted to move away from the faith. And the author of Hebrews is writing to a people who know the Bible really well, faithful believers who are in the brink of falling away. And he says, look at the example of the wilderness. Look at these people, but look at Christ. Look what he's done for you. Look at the, conf- look at the cross, the fact that he, the creator, who should never have died because of sin, because he never committed any takes upon himself and becomes indistinguishable with sin at the cross so that as he dies, even 2,000 years later, sees every single sin that you and I who have placed in him, faith in him have committed on the son at the cross. And he takes on the punishment that you and I deserve. He takes on the punishment that you and I deserve. And this very last verse and the very last point of this passage, and it is an encouragement to, to endure in the exhortation. We're encouraged to lay hold the gospel promises because God provides mercy and grace and grace. Verse 16 says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy. Who needs mercy? And find grace to help me because Christ took on flesh. Thank God for the incarnation because this right here, God giving grace and mercy is only possible because of what Christ has done. But don't, don't shy away from being very vocal, confessionally vocal on the fact that the second party was fully God and fully man. Because our, the foundation of our Christian faith rests on And the quality of our lives here today rests on that truth. And our eternal destiny rests on that truth. And what you today make of Christ determines the quality of your life here today and your eternal It's impossible for us to hold fast this confession. It's impossible for us to believe in the gospel. Do you know why? Because the world is constantly knocking at the door of our hearts, constantly, okay? Come on, be real constantly knocking on the door of our hearts with the silver platter of every sinful desire that your heart has. 
I say, you take it. It's yours. You can have it all. You can have it. Just abandon your confession. That's all you have to do. Just be unbelieving. Because remember, it's unbelief that forfeited the Israelites from entering the promised land. Disobedience and sin was just an effect of that. And they get punished for it. So the world constantly, and it's so easy, right? It's easy to fall into temptation and to give in to temptation. It's been easier now than ever, at least in my life. 38 years of living on this earth, it's just very, very easy. In Romans 1, Paul tells us that the righteous are justified by what? Faith, right? Justified by faith. So this is a one-time event. God declares you righteous because you looked at Christ in faith, trusting him, saying, look, I got nothing to offer. My righteous deeds are like dirty rags before you. There is nothing that I can do. I am pleased believing that that is the only way out. That man dying on the cross for my sin, the only way out. I believe in him. I believe in him. And you're declared righteous. You're declared righteous once and for all. But there's also something else that Paul That besides being justified by faith, this one singular event, we walk by faith. Having been now justified by faith, we walk by faith. The Lord Jesus Christ gives us grace upon grace for you who believe him. He gave us that one amazing grace of saving us. And in every single instant of our lives, as we cling to his truth, as we cling to him, as we hang on, we hold fast. We can with boldness approach the throne of grace that no Israelite could have done apart from the high priest. We all have access to that because Christ Open up the doors of heaven for us to be able to enter the presence of God because has done. We now have access. We need this grace of God. We need the mercy of God to get up in the morning. To not be lazy. We need this grace of God to love our spouses. To love our children. To love our enemies. How can we possibly love our enemies apart from the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need this grace of God to press on under pressure. This world is assaulting us. Our hearts are evil and deceptive. Our hearts lead us in the wrong direction and by God's grace, he leads us in the right direction. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8 that God works all things together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purposes. Life is difficult. It is very difficult. The temptation to sin is great. The temptation to sin is always before us. But we do have a great high priest who can sympathize with us. We have a great high priest who even trials is constantly working things out for our good, for the good of the church. So you look at the world today, right? I mean, I mean, what's going on in Israel is just a small little thing. 
you know, in light of all history. You look at what's going on in our world. At the fact that people are so confused over the basic makeup of what it means to be a human being. But God works all that for the good of his church. It's difficult to see, right? It's difficult to see. We can't see the invisible hand of promise, but we can trust him. And we do not want to be like the wilderness generation who disbelieved God and therefore we were led to sin. This is what Hebrews 10, I want to close with this. This is what Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 25 says. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, what we've been talking about for the last 39 and a half minutes, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, you know that massive curtain that, that kept anyone the holy of holies? So he tore that, allowing us access to God the Father. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, Here's, an, here's the encouragement, right? Let us draw near with a true heart in full of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, friends, without wavering. Please, without wavering. For he who promises faithful, we can hold fast this promise because Christ is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. This is what we're doing. This is why we're encouraging one another, as is the habit of some other. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. There is a day when our Lord Jesus Christ will return. He will return with rewards and he will give us that which our hearts have longed for, which is we get to see, you know, the man who died on the cross, we will see his face and we are told that in his presence there is fullness of joy and that he will wipe away every tear and all our suffering and grief will be gone. This, this momentary life is just a bleep in the radar of eternity for us. And there is this day he is coming back, but he's also coming back in judgment because he came once to sin, to save sinners, and he's coming up, he's coming a second time to judge the wicked and to take the righteous for himself. And my encouragement to you this morning is twofold. If you are in a position where faith is being compromised, do not lose hope, but run to Christ. He's a faithful high priest. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And for those of you who have not placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, today is a day of salvation for you. Don't neglect this word that you have. I'll, I'll give up everything for you to believe this, but I know it's the Lord's work in your heart and beg him to open up your heart. Let's pray. For more resources and information about Hope Church Toronto West, please visit hopechurchtw.ca.